Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Economist. I'm Anne McElvoy, senior editor, and this is The Economist Asks. At least, I think that's what it is. There are known knowns. There are things we know we know. We also know there are known unknowns. That is to say, we know there are some things we do not know. But there are also unknown unknowns. The ones we don't know, we don't know. (laughs) Former U.S. Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld there on the thorny nature of knowledge. And that's our question today. We have more brain power and more computing power dedicated to the pursuit of science than ever before in human history. And scientists themselves are more connected, allowing the pencil and paper notes of Peter Higgs to be realised in the Large Hadron Collider, bringing us closer to the foundational matter of the universe. We have a discovery. We have discovered a new particle, a boson. Today we're going to announce that under certain circumstances... Liquid water has been found on Mars. We have detected gravitational waves. We did it. All those minds, all those enormous computers, colliders and telescopes taking us into new realms of the undiscovered. But how far can they take us? And do we know what we think we know? Have we reached the limits of what we'll ever understand? Joining me today are the limitless Jason Palmer, editor of our Espresso app and a long-standing science writer, and Marcus de Sotoy. Marcus is a mathematician and professor of public understanding of science at Oxford University. He's just been made a member of the prestigious Royal Society. He's also author of an upcoming book, What We Cannot Know, about the limits of scientific knowledge and understanding. So, Marcus de Sotoy, isn't this a bit of hubris? Doesn't every generation think it's figured it all out and then some new discovery reshapes it all? Well, exactly. I was interested whether we could actually articulate problems in science that by their very nature uh, we could already say would be unanswerable. And I think every generation has, has hit this. You know, you, you had middle of the 19th century, Auguste Comte saying, we will never know the chemical composition of a star. And, you know, at the time, sure enough, like, we're never, ever going to travel to a star. But he hadn't realised the star can travel to us so we can get the light and we can actually see what it's made of. So, yeah, it's, it's of course, incredibly dangerous. And I say this in the book, you know, incredibly dangerous at any moment um, in the history of science to say, look, We've reached a limit. We'll never know this because, um, you know, who knows when we'll get another Einstein coming and suddenly transforming our view of the universe. So, Jason, as a science journalist, what do you make of Marcus's quest? Does it make sense? The, the question of whether or not this is the right time to do this, I think, is a good one because everyone imagines that they're, you know, a- approaching the limits of knowledge. J.G. Thompson saying, you know, there will be no more findings in physics, just more decimal points and so on. I have a bunch of questions, I suppose, about where you think there's room for improvement and where there are actual sort of hard stops provided by Mother Nature. 
Exactly. So that was what I did. I, I took the whole of science, basically, and t took uh, each of them in turn and said, OK, are there things in here that we will uh, never, ever be able to know? For example, dividing uh, an atom, and we get down to electrons, protons and neutrons. Dividing that, and we get down to quarks. Dividing that, do we get to strings? Dividing that, do we ever know that there'll be a stop to this? Is it just turtles all the way down? Or, or, or look the other way. The universe, is the universe infinite? If it is infinite, could we ever know that? And actually, I took my own subject of mathematics as a great example, because within mathematics, we actually have a theorem which articulates limits of knowledge. It's called Gödel's Incompleteness Theorem. And it says there are true statements of mathematics within a system that we can never prove are true. So mathematics has turned in on itself and shown its own limitations. And what I wanted to do is, can you do that with science? Before Mr Girdle goes any further here in the conversation, I just want to know what's the most important thing we think we can figure out, but we haven't yet, in your pecking order. That we think we can figure out. I mean, that's a, a, a very... Because that, those are the th sort of unknowns that we might know. You know, one of the interesting uh, edges I've explored is the idea of consciousness. What's going on inside the human brain? And consciousness, we have this thing called the hard problem of consciousness, that by its very nature, many philosophers and scientists will say, that is an unanswerable problem, because I can never get inside your head to work out what it feels like to listen to a piece of music, taste a coffee, um, have a headache. But I do think we're making a lot of progress, and I think that is one that we might get some resolution on. Jason, this idea of an edge, phrase it's cropped up there. Does that make sense to you? Are you clear what an edge is? Or is that just a perception of a limit, which we might be entirely wrong about? Well, I think the the the, the, the real question is, uh, you, you mentioned consciousness. That's an interesting one because it, it may bring in what are the human limitations. I'm interested to know how much you think is a, a biological limitation, we, uh, limited by our language, by our brains, by our mathematics even. Yes, and, and actually by our senses. I mean, uh, you know, if you dig deep into the philosophy of science, of course, you hit up against this problem that we can only know things through our senses. And, for example, take a, an organism which doesn't have any senses which can detect electromagnetism, uh, light, would it ever know about light to be able to develop a theory of light? And so we can ask the same about us. You know, surely we're not at the, the top of the sort of tree of um, uh, what could be possible for an organism. Maybe there are things that we are unable to sense because we don't have the kind of equipment for it that we'll never know about the universe. One of the interesting areas that you touch on particularly when you lay out how you set about the book, because you, you were asked in your role as a professor of the public understanding of science. Yes, I'm meant to know it all. This, <laughs> this newfangled idea in which you're supposed to make it, make it clear to the rest of us what is actually going on in science. And, and people asked you about God, uh, and it, I got the impression, just the way you wrote about it, that you saw it as a slight irritation because it wasn't really the way that you were expecting the conversation to progress, but something that deals with unknowability and the borders of human knowledge and experience is inevitably going to lead you to that bridge, to the spiritual, to the non-scientific. How did you go about that? Uh, that, for me, was one of the challenges of this book because I took over from Richard Dawkins, uh, and so I immediately got lots of questions about my beliefs on religion. And so I tried at, at the start to distance myself from this, saying, no, I want to talk about science. But I got asked on a radio interview, and I got pushed on Northern Ireland Radio on a Sunday morning. And I said, OK, as a mathematician, I want you to define this thing because then I can engage with it. And he said, OK, it's something which transcends knowledge. And at the time, I thought that was a cop-out. But actually... 
I began to think that's quite an interesting definition. And it's part of the uh, inspiration for this book is, OK, if you take that as a definition, what are the things that can transcend knowledge and what sort of power and influence might they have? What is this sort of God? It's a very abstract concept. Actually, I talked to a philosopher in New College, my college in Oxford, and he said, you've got to go and read Herbert McCabe, who was a theologian. And he said that God is the existence of a question which cannot be answered. And we committed iconoclasm by actually giving this idea far too many sort of uh, uh, physical properties. Is Marcus's view then of that link, for some people tenuous, for some people absolutely deeply felt between the unknowable and God or a godlike entity, is that a borderline between the unknowable and the incalculable. I think we're still dancing around the, the fundamental question here is the, the, the sort of the god of the gaps idea. You know, we're talking about pushing forward uh, b- boundaries of knowledge, yet they will not, you know, we, we won't run out of room. There will always be things. And for a lot of people, the easiest sort of intellectual leap to make is, well, that which cannot be explained, as you say, must therefore be divine in some way. Or the jump is at least easy to make that if we can't understand it, it is not of ourselves. I I don't know if that's been sort of adequately covered here. I mean, how do you think science, and someone in your position sort of speaking to the public about about these very things, how do we tame the God of the Gaps? Yes, you see, God of the Gaps was always used as a criticism of this idea that God was in the Gaps and that uh, science is actually sort of pushing it out. Um, But I'm kind of, in some sense, trying to reclaim that as a sort of positive idea. Yes, let's look at the things not which are beyond knowledge at the moment. I'm not interested in those. I'm interested in are there any problems that we can say will always remain beyond um, our uh, abilities to know? Um, maybe there aren't any. Maybe we can know everything. But, you know, I don't think the universe is set up as a exercise in the you know, philosophy of science. There, there surely are things. So the book is, you know, and I'm not saying it's definitive. It's a kind of exploration. My own exploration of my own personal limits. Taking over this job as the professor for the public understanding of science can I know all that is known at the moment but um, are there things that will remain always beyond our knowledge and what sort of power do they have so Jason this is linked to Marcus's quest for a greater public understanding of science does it help him on the way well, I think so, but I think there are a couple of potential pitfalls in the sense that if you ask the sort of the average person, what does science do? Well, it finds out these absolute truths, these these testable out to nine decimal places, things about the world, and you're, you're kind of scratching at the, the surface of that saying, well, actually, there are there are limits there. What do you think scientists should do to sort of present the limits of their powers? I think it is important that uh, the public understand that scientists don't know it all. I think there is a perception that science is all-powerful. You even, uh, even said it, that we don't know these things in science with 100% certainty. Science, by its nature, must be falsifiable. It is a balance, absolutely, as you say, because you don't want to say that, actually, we don't know anything, because we know a lot, and part of this book is showing how much we do know and how we know it. So I think it's important with something like climate change that we do know a lot about it, but there are some edges, uh, fuzzy edges, and I think scientists need to be open about what are the uh, possibilities that we we don't know about yet. Did you think as you went on, I'm opening this goal, if you like, even wider? I became a mathematician because I hanker for certainty. And in mathematics, once you've got a proof, you know with 100% certainty, for example, that there are infinitely many primes. The proof will not be overturned. Whilst in science, it's a much more evolutionary process. So you have to open yourself up to falsifiability and change. So actually, I chose mathematics because I want to know and I want certainty. So this was a journey for me. Having broadened my perspective, becoming the public understanding of science professor, I have had to engage with uh, with sciences which are a little bit more fluid and 
not so like mathematics. And so this this is a kind of personal journey as much as a philosophical and scientific journey about dealing with that kind of un- uncertainty and, and, you know, what what do you do with that? I always think that there's a bit of an irony in having these chairs for the public understanding of, of science, given that the record shows that there's an awful lot of at least misunderstanding, some of it willful and some of it genuinely the product of, of confusion in a lot of the public mind about science. So what is it that you need to do better? I think actually we shouldn't have just one professorship in the public understanding of science. It should be actually the job of all scientists. Being a scientist is about discovery, but it's also about communication. And the more you communicate those ideas to a wider audience, the more those ideas and discoveries kind of breathe and come alive. So I'm encouraged... I'm just going to challenge you directly on that, Marcus, because my my experience of sometimes touching on this in my own coverage and, of course, uh, reading what The Economist has said about it over the years, MMR vaccine, global warming, many areas in which a generally generous view of the public understanding of science would seem not to have been called for. Well, this is why I think that the Royal Society responded to the Jenkins report, the House of Lords, um, saying that actually at the moment, many of these problems about the perception of science are coming because scientists are not stepping up to the plate and actually trying to communicate their ideas. So partly this is what my book is about, is trying to step up to the plate, explore some of these scientific ideas, also reveal my own limitations. You know, scientists don't know it all, And I think that's an important. It's actually what drives us to do science is the fact that we don't know it all. I would hate to suggest to a former science writer at The Economist that he didn't know it all. But, Jason, does that strike you as a sensible approach or is the public understanding of science impeded by something perhaps bigger? Certainly what I, what I have found is that a lot of people give sets limitations on themselves. You could write a different book about how much people imagine that because it's scientific, they can't understand it. Because it happens, you know, in this sort of rarefied academic world, it's something apart from their own lives. I think that is probably the, the step to be made here. Not just a science is great and here's a very glossy documentary on it and so on, but to convince people that it's only real average human beings who have gone and learned this stuff. So you as an average human being can get this stuff. Marcus de Sotoy, Jason Palmer... Thank you. Do send us your thoughts on the conversation you've just heard. You can either email radio at economist.com or tweet us at Economist Radio. From me, Anne McElvoy, and The Economist in London, goodbye. <laughs>